Welcome to episode two of the Wealth by Jake podcast. In this episode, we're continuing our conversation about how the wealthy use life insurance as an investment tool. Specifically, we're talking about how does the insurance company make money? What about all those huge fees associated with insurance policies? And what kind of returns can I expect? Let's go. Hey, excited to jump into episode two of this podcast. This is an embarrassing episode, and I'll tell you why. Because I'm going to answer some questions from many of you who are subscribers. I'm going to answer three questions today. But the truth is some of these questions, I, I want to go through and answer the questions that have been asked over the last decade, really, that we have not answered. Um, the first question is from eight years ago, and we're going to go through and answer these questions because uh, I want to make it right. The first question is from Thomas Rones, eight years ago. And Thomas says, how does the insurance company make money? After 20 years, they are more than matching your contribution. So he's referencing some of the, the numbers in the video. Um, I don't know if that's the most important part, but but fundamentally, this question of how does the insurance company make money is one that comes up frequently. And it's it's really an interesting topic because these insurance companies that we'll talk about are insurance companies that are the most unique form of organization that I think I know about in in our in in the world. Um, they function in a really unique way. So before I, I share exactly how they function, I need to distinguish the fact that there are different types of insurance companies. So there are two fundamental types of insurance companies that you, that you could potentially run into as if you're looking to uh, find a cash value insurance policy. The first type is called a stock company. Pretty simple in the sense that there are owners that hold shares of stock in the insurance company. There's a second type of insurance company organization that's known as a mutual insurance company. Now, a mutual company has no stockholders. It has no owners. The policyholders themselves are the owners of the organization. So if you think about that, just it's pretty obvious as you consider if the, if the insurance company does well, if it, if it manages its money well, then in a stock company, they may offer some returns to policyholders, but for the most part, they're gonna serve their stockholders. Uh, similar to like a bank, right? Like a bank's gonna offer you some menial amount of return in exchange for your deposits and some other services. But fundamentally, they're gonna have uh, owners that are gonna profit from the success of the bank. But a mutual company is different in that those profits go back and, be, and become distributed to the policyholders themselves. Uh, which means that the people who profit when the insurance company does well are us. So that doesn't entirely answer the question that Thomas is asking. How does the insurance company make money? But it gives you a sense of, of how money works inside of the insurance company. 
So in a mutual company, which obviously, if you haven't gathered, is the type of company you wanna look for if you're gonna put money in life insurance. But a mutual insurance company is going to provide those returns to the policyholders. So that's important to think about because the insurance company themselves doesn't go out and make money for themselves. They go out and make money for you, the policyholder. Okay, so in a sense, you are the insurance company. You are the, the person who profits from the insurance company doing well. Okay, so that's one aspect of this question. I think the other aspect of this question is um, where actually do they put their money? So this is, I mean, this doesn't take much research, but I'm gonna give you an example. You could look at this on any insurance company's website uh, for the most part but they pretty uh, openly share where they invest their money. And generally speaking, an insurance company is trying to manage its money well so that it can um, pay the insurance claims that are it's required to pay to continue to be solvent. So essentially, my the point there being that they're not out to make 10, 20%. They're not trying to have these insane growth metrics. That's not the point, that's not why they exist. They exist to pay out death claims for the people they insure. And so as they're managing their money or as they're taking in these premiums, they certainly have these large, large pools of money. I think, uh, so the example I'm gonna give you is Mass Mutual. They have $220 billion um, invested in assets as of the end of 2021. So they have large pools of money that naturally accumulate as they are uh, taking in premiums and paying out death claims. So with this these stack with this these these large pools of money, they take that money and they go make the best use of it they can. But remember the point here is not for them to go and give you the it's not it's not a growth mechanism. It's a better growth mechanism. It's a better growth strategy when compared to all the different savings strategies that are out there. But we're not looking at this from a growth standpoint. We're looking at this from a uh, access to capital and an overall strategy of finding opportunities and investing in good opportunities when they come and having access to capital. That said, the insurance company allocates that money into various places, the majority of which are in bonds, both public bonds and private bonds. So the so so in so with Mass Mutual, you can see that they have 25% of their money in public bonds, another 27 or so percent in private bonds, very little in equities, so very little in stocks. They have another 12% or so in mortgage loans. They've got 7.4% in policy loans. That's people like you and I who are requesting money for our own personal uses. And then a little bit in real estate equities, so they don't own a lot of real estate. Um, partnership and LLCs, they have some. Short terms and cash, roughly 3%. And other invested accounts, which are a variety of things, upward of 20%. So these can be a, a, a range of different things. Let me show you another, uh, another uh, way to, if we break this down a little bit further. So if you look at their long-term bonds, you'll see that those are broken up into the various categories of bonds that are available. Now bonds can be more or less risky based on the rating that, they, that a, a company receives, um, which obviously affects the returns or the price of that bond. You'll see that 
50% of the bond allocation is in high top tier bonds, AAA, AA, and A rated bonds. Triple B, another good, good portion, and then it trickles down from there. So that's where the majority of those bonds are going to be. Then you start getting into corporate bonds. You're going to see that they have, I mean, this is why this is why the insurance company can have a higher yield than you and I can in any other savings place because they're able to take advantage of corporate uh, of these of these big ticket bonds that are going to have better payouts than what you and I could get if we were to go, you know, first of all, AT&T is not going to necessarily give me, you know, let me buy a bond. Um, because I don't have the money to buy a corporate bond from AT&T. They have a $296 million corporate bond, right? So because they're able to do that, they're able to require uh, or ask for higher yields. So you can see some of these places where they have their money invested. Um, you can see where somewhere in some small amount is in U.S. Treasuries, municipal bonds, mortgage-backed securities. Um, corporate credit is a big category. Um, the other place that you're going to find it is, which is kind of interesting, is they, they expand not just, they, they expand past our borders. So they're in United Kingdom, $10 billion in long-term bonds in the United Kingdom, right? So these insurance companies are looking for the safest places to put this money so that it can return a yield to us, the policyholders. Um, and then the rest are just pretty pretty minimal ultimately. Here's a couple of you know some real estate, um, how they're how they're allocated into some office, some apartments, some industrial. Um, so fundament so fundamentally the so fundamentally the insurance company is making money by putting it out to work in safe, uh, as high yield as they can find with safety as the premise. Now, historically, uh, our case studies show anywhere between four to 6% returns on, to us, the policyholders. Um, and so the insurance company is obviously gonna get a, uh, getting a higher yield, covering some costs associated with that and then passing that along to the policyholders. So Thomas, that's the answer to your question. They're making money by putting it out to work but ultimately the people who are making money is us because we are the policyholders of a mutual insurance company. Now, I'm gonna piggyback off of this question because in the comments section, five years ago, there was a comment by Gruntsworth One. And he says, they make money by charging huge fees on whole life policies. Whole life policies are loaded with tons of fees. This is not an investment at all. It is a way for an insurance company to confuse you away from your money. 10 minutes of research will save you from this money pit. This is an interesting comment because it's clear that this individual has not a, has a very, uh, has no understanding of how this works because again, a mutual insurance company is going to, is going to pass along all profits to the policyholders. There is no one at the top. There is no insurance company. There's no greedy uh, investor. There's no, uh, you know, there's, there's no one at the top that's profiteering off of all of our 
investment premiums. Now, there are costs associated with it. I mean, the people who sell it get paid. The people who manage the money get paid. The people who are managing the, the, uh, the policies, you know, all the transactions, all of the, all of the administration to this type of work. But when you have 220 billion of assets, uh, these are minimal, like minimal expenses in the long run. And so uh, there, there is some truth. I guess, I guess I can see where, where there's some, um, some where, where this idea of huge fees comes in because this again is, is where unfortunately mainstream America gets a, gets a bad, uh, they get a bad version of what these types of high cash concentrated policies can do. Most of the policies that people are presented are very, very, uh, they're structured very, very slowly or very, very poorly, which means they grow very, very slowly. That means typically when you see an insurance policy designed by a traditional insurance agent, you're going to see $0 of cash value in the first year. That is horrible. Now, if you paid those premiums over 30 years, it would turn out just fine, but you don't want to pay premiums over 30 years and, oh, excuse me, you might want to pay premium over 30 years, but you don't want it to take 30 years to realize the returns that you're hoping for. And that's where the, that's where, um, the lack of knowledge of mainstream America in this segment, and particularly in those who sell this type of product have no idea that you can actually soup like super fund these types of policies for cash which means that your yields come quicker your 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 access to capital is immediate and um and so that sticker shock of like no money after you put in ten thousand dollars in the first year put in a fifty thousand dollar payment and have zero in cash value that that doesn't quite exist if you're doing it um, if you're building it for cash value. Um, and there's a relationship there between what an insurance agent would get paid, because they typically get paid on that base amount, the stuff that doesn't go towards cash value, which is probably why most people don't get presented policies that have high cash, is because the insurance agent will make less money as a result. That could be part of it. So huge fees, ah, that's, that's tough, tough because... Uh, it's just, I mean, even if they did charge huge fees, it just come back to you because you are the policyholder. So the profits of the mutual insurance company are to the benefit of the policyholder. So that's, I'm wrapping that into question two. So let's go in, let's go into question three. This is from Quiet Like, and this is seven years ago. It says, I've seen a bunch of examples where do you get this 5% compounding interest? Isn't the guaranteed interest only like 2% and the dividends on the only on the base premium, not the PUA? Okay, a couple things to unravel there. So I don't so I don't know exactly what he's referring to in terms of the 5% compounding interest. Um, I don't know where the reference is, but I, I do I do share that that it's I, I typically say between four and six percent returns in a policy like this. These are historical examples 
that uh, are of real policies that we've examined. So over the last 30 years, yeah, pretty, pretty easy to be in that 5% territory, uh, if not more, on an insurance policy. What you might see if someone illustrated it to you today might be a little different. We're in a different environment. Interest rates are lower at this point, at, at, this, at this stage. And there's gonna be a reaction to that and how it's presented and the policy's growth. And, and, and so it might not look as, um, it might not look as, it might not look like a 5% it might not look like a 5% growth rate on an illustration. We're seeing more like four. But the point isn't that it will return 5%. The point is that it will, because of how it's designed and because of where they can invest their money and because they pass that money along to policyholders, what we're saying is not a, a an expected return, although we can sort of gauge that. What we're saying is that in comparison, because everything we're, we're choosing is a, is a trade-off between one or multiple options, what we're saying is that this will be the highest yielding place for safe capital to exist, period. Maybe it's four, maybe it's five, maybe it's seven. If interest rates keep climbing, it might be eight or nine. I don't know. But what I am saying is that it will yield the highest yield compared to those other investments. Okay, so on to this next part of the question. So isn't the guaranteed interest only like 2%? Yes, an illustration is gonna show guaranteed values, but a whole, a, a properly structured with a major mutual company, insurance policy, is going to have a guaranteed like column and a non-guaranteed column. The guarantee is going to return less. It might show two, half, three percent. That's fine. But but again, what we're looking for is what we think is really going to happen. At the end of the day, like the insurance company can show whatever they want. I mean, we see this all the time. If you're going to look at an index universal life policy, for example, it is entirely a, a guess of the future. Whereas a, like a whole life policy is going to be based on a lot of historical data that's, uh, that's not overly, like, if anything, it's conservative right now because we're in a low interest rate environment. But these are companies, so a guaranteed rate would be as if the company, is, it would be in the scenario where the company doesn't earn or pay a dividend at all. And when you think, talk about these major mutual companies. When I say that, I'm talking about, um, you know, I've, I've mentioned this before, but Guardian, Mass Mutual, New York Life, uh, Northwestern Mutual. These are really top tier, safe, uh, well-run mutual, mutual insurance companies. And for the last hundred plus years, I'm not sure exactly on each of them, but roughly, probably at a minimum, they have returned dividends every year for 100 plus years through the Great Depression, through 08, through major market swings over the last, you know, several, several decades. And so we're talking about um, guaranteed rates that are probably not realistic. Nice to have a guarantee in there, but 
it's pretty well assumed, we're assuming, uh, you'll have to make those assumptions yourself if you think that the history that they've proven is enough to build confidence in what they can do going forward. Now, the last part of this question, so, so he says, isn't the guaranteed interest only like 2% and the dividends only on the base premium, not the PUA? So I, first of all, I don't think this question really, really matters. And I say that because when we're talking about looking historically at policies and what they've returned, we're looking at money in and money out, right? We're not looking at just a a piece of it and we're not including something else. This is like a global perspective of the, you know, the rate of return on the money, uh, all the money used, right? So it, there is, there is a, there is a reference here to the fact that when you put money into a policy, it gets distributed between base premium, which is essentially the cost of insurance, not entirely. There is growth within that as well. It can, it can build the growth too, but it's essentially the cost of insurance in a way and it's the part of the policy that we are trying to reduce to its absolute minimum. You want your base premium to be as little as possible. And then the rest of your money, you want to go into paid up additions or the cash value is an oversimplified way of saying this into the cash value part of your policy. And so uh, if I'm putting in $50,000, I'm gonna have a majority of my money into the cash value or the paid up additions, and then a portion of it's gonna to go to base premium. So uh, the question here is, do the dividends somehow segment only to the base, and because we're reducing the base to its absolute minimum, doesn't that reduce our returns? And the answer is no. Um, if you had no premium, so down the road after a, the seven year window, um, which is a tax, uh, is, it's the MEC window, uh, I want to get overcomplicated here, but if you wait seven years, then you can do almost you can do lots of different things with your policy. Particularly, you can exercise a reduced paid-up option, which essentially closes out all future costs, future premium, future anything. It rolls up the the money that you have in cash value into this policy that can now just grow at dividend rate. So uh, it increases the speed at which the policy grows. And those policies still get dividends. And so there's not a distinguishing factor between base and paid up additions that you need to worry about. Uh, we're not minimizing the returns because we're minimizing the base premium. What we're doing is minimizing the cost of insurance so we can maximize the cash. Uh, so to, to get to a, a more simple uh, uh, piece of this, the most important part of this is when we're looking at those returns, we're one, we're looking at a comparative uh, return. We don't really know, we don't really know what the return is going to be, but we do know it's going to be the best return for a savings vehicle that we could possibly find. It's going to absolutely be the best, no doubt. And then um, we're going to see money in, money out. We're going to see a, a, a decent return, four to 6% on those policies over time. Thank you for listening. This wraps up episode two of the Wealth by Jake podcast. If you have questions about anything that we discussed or anything in general in this topic or investing in entrepreneurship in general, if you have some questions, please ask them below or shoot me a message in some way. I would love to help answer those questions. As promised, I'm going through all the questions that we've missed over the years. We hope you enjoy the content and we'll look forward to seeing you at the next episode. Thank you.